0: Hi, I'm Drithi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? Thank you for joining us for season two. I'm a writer and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing and also will make some tick. The podcast is for those who are reckoning and tired of being told that you can only have one focus or one thing that makes you you. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone who breaks these lines and has managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Sharon Anaja, founder of Humanity Works Consultancy, a burnout expert and also a crisp aficionado. You've been described as the burnout queen. Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey?
1: (laughs) Yeah, the burnout queen. I think the burnout queen is kind of in two parts. There is the fact that I think I have a PhD in knowing how to burn out, which is partly why I'm the burnout queen. But equally, um, I know how to stop organisations from having burnout cultures, which is also why I'm called the burnout queen my journey though is an interesting one and again this is in two halves there's the burnout version of sharon who uh, was very kind of work hard play hard mentality a very influenced like by that kind of 1980s ethos you know very kind of like wall street like let's make lots of money let's focus on like getting a great job and getting promotions and buying a house and buying a car and And I spent most of my 20s and 30s doing that, climbing that corporate career ladder, not really caring what happened in between. That was the goal, was to succeed and to get validation. And along that way, I was very, very prone to burnout because people who look for that kind of validation all the time, and quite frankly, who don't take care of themselves and work in organisations that support that kind of culture, burnout is an inevitability. What made me change, and and this is going to sound quite uh, dark, is actually death. So in 2014, when I guess I was at, maybe at that point, I considered the peak of my career where I thought I was untouchable and nothing I could do would go wrong. I had a very kind of routine surgery on my ovaries to remove a fibroid, which is a really standard operation. People come out of that, you know, the the same day or the next day. Mm And during that surgery, the surgeon made a mistake and cut my bowel. And when she put a stitch in it to repair it, I was sent home. But what I don't think me or my family really understood at that point in time, that actually something like that can be very deadly. And we didn't really pay very much attention to it. But within 48 hours, I was being rushed back into A&E, only for another doctor to tell me that I was dying. And that I only had really a few hours left to live because I developed something called peritonitis. And my bowels had opened into my body. And I was in excruciating pain and I couldn't speak at this point when I was taken to A&E. It was my mom who raised the alarm and being like a tiger mom that she is, she just wouldn't give up. She was like, you will see my daughter, something is wrong. It was a terrible experience to go through something like that because we didn't know whether I was going to make it. And I knew in that moment when they were telling me these things that I had made the biggest mistake of my life because I had focused all my energy and attention on all the wrong things. And I realized that the key thing that was missing in my life was love. And I never paid any attention to it because I was so obsessed with getting this kind of superficial success. And when I came out of that experience, because this isn't a Hollywood movie, I did not turn around and embrace love, (laughs) not at all. I went back and did all the exact same things again that I had done beforehand. I took on even more senior roles. I worked even harder. I drank even more. I pushed and pushed and pushed myself because I didn't want to deal with the fact that what I had gone through was extremely traumatic. And actually what I had developed was PTSD. And I didn't want to tell anyone because I was afraid. I was the only woman of colour at a senior level within the organisation I worked in. And I didn't wanna give anyone the opportunity to tell me that I couldn't be in that job anymore. So I hid it. I hid it from everyone. I was brilliant at hiding it. You would never know. My friends didn't know, my family didn't know, nobody knew what was really going on until I had an enormous breakdown a year and a half later and I had to accept that I needed help. And so I say my story is one of two halves because it took for me to almost die To get burnt out all over again, to have PTSD, to basically get myself to the point where I just couldn't cope, like couldn't not cope with life at all. uh, To finally accept that I needed to change my life and my approach to work, my relationship to myself and how I led at work because I was a senior leader and how I led the team, how I behaved, of course, impacted everyone else. And so I went through this incredible transformation, really. It didn't happen overnight. It took time where I finally started to choose love, choose love for myself by setting some healthier boundaries, not pushing and pushing myself, being more loving as a leader, which sounds strange in terms of corporate speak, but it meant that I became much more compassionate and much more emotionally intelligent leader. And one that was really focused on how we could create an environment where everyone could do well, instead of being just focused, you know, on on like work and results and productivity, which is never the answer. And ultimately, it was about really changing my relationship with other people. We talk a good game about resilience, as if resilience is some solitary pursuit. But everything I've just described to you, I didn't do any of it alone. I needed other people for the first time in my life i actually asked for help and actually allowed people in and i told the truth which was something i was never done beforehand because i was too busy hiding my journey has been one of intense pain trauma and fear but at the same time on the flip side has been one of intense love and joy now for the life that i have created So yes, a burnout queen is more loaded, I think, than people realise. I think they attribute it to my knowledge of burnout, but it actually is much, much more personal than that.
0: I think that's really nuanced in terms of sharing what happened and how you've grown as well through a lot of that. But something that you've done that perhaps not everybody would, and you have carved out a niche in, in one hand for something that's probably going to resonate with a lot of people is that you took your experiences and, you know, now you're the founder of Humanity Works Consultancy and you're helping other people. So what was that prompt to take what you had gone through and embrace it in order to be able to provide that support to others?
1: When I came back into the workplace after having gone through what I had and this time actually telling the truth, and I really decided that I wanted to change the environment that I worked in and being a senior leader in that business meant that I had the opportunity to be able to do that and I had the sway to be able to do that and I think going through that transformation myself as a leader as well as working with the senior leadership team to change the culture within the organisation really made me appreciate that actually I can make a change like I can do this I can help and it was The thing that really propelled me to actually leave my career in, in, as I was in marketing beforehand, to leave that behind, retrain as a positive psychology coach and then set up Humanity Works Consultancy with the aim really of, I think, telling the truth. I know that sounds strange, but I think for me, we need to tell the truth about burnout about what actually causes burnout and what it takes in order to change a burnout culture in an organisation. And I think I felt very, very drawn to that, that actually we need to start having some very honest conversations in organisations to make that change. And actually we can do it. Like burnout is completely preventable. It's not like having anxiety or depression. It's not a mental health condition. It's something that we can change. And as leaders in organisations, we are able to do that. And that kind of drive, I think, that I know that it can work and I know that we can change it. And I know that I have the ability to be able to do that has really driven me to, to branch out and to actually say goodbye to what was a very successful marketing career and take an enormous risk and launch my own business. I always say to my clients, I didn't get in this to make millions. I got in this because I want to help people. I want to make a difference. Having gone through what I've gone through, I know that the next time I'm on my deathbed, there will be a next time because death is an inevitability. I want to look back and this time not regret. I don't want to look back and think, oh no, I prioritised all the wrong things. I want to know this time I did it right because I did get a second chance and positively impacting other people's lives helping to make work good for us which right now work is not necessarily good for most people it's actually causing a lot of issues stopping burnout which is something completely doable and preventable and something that is within my gift to be able to help other people to do and I think I'm not afraid to have those hard conversations with leaders and tell them the truth so I think that kind of determination that resilience that kind of honesty, that candour, but at the same time, there's an enormous amount of humanity in it as well. So it's not berating people, it's not judging them. It's saying, hey, this is what we can do to change it, and this is a roadmap, and I'm going to help you to get there. We'll get to the other side. We met at an event celebrating people of colour called
0: People Like Us, and you had this wonderful care kit, which really stood out. But what are the commonalities that made you think, actually, I can create a product in this time of need, at least to introduce myself to people who don't know what I'm able to offer
1: here. Our focus is really about how we can change the culture in an organisation rather than how do we help individuals who are burnt out. So we don't specialise in burnout recovery for individuals. What we're interested in is what needs to change within the workplace culture to stop an environment where people are burning out. And we have run many, many surveys now and have done a lot of work in this within the organisations that we've worked in over the last three years. And there's three key things that always come out. 40% of what's causing people's burnout is their relationship with their manager. The other 40% is caused by the working practices, too many meetings, too much workload not enough time given to the things that are actually important to people, for example. And only 20% is down to the individual's, say, lack of resilience or inability to kind of manage how they are feeling and what's going on for them. So we know from the data, and and our data is supported by, in general, data about what causes burnout within organisations. And so the programme that we've created addresses the actual stressors So the actual causes of why a culture of burnout exists within that organization. To be honest, it's the same. Whatever organization we're in, whether it's a public sector organization like with a council, whether it's like a bank, it's the same things again and again. The language might change. The type of issues that are happening in their relationship with their managers, they might slightly be different. But ultimately, it's always broadly falls into the same categories. And so it's easy, therefore, for us to have like a coaching program where we are training leaders, where we're training the staff, helping them to set healthier boundaries. We're helping leaders become more human leaders, develop their emotional intelligence, develop the levels of psychological safety, enable those conversations to happen so that they can start to understand each other a lot better. So those things remain uniform in that respect but of course how people experience burnout will always be different for some people the symptoms will will vary but like i said we're really looking at the causes and the stresses rather than an individual's exact journey through burnout we do provide tools where people can self-diagnose and understand where they are on the scale like the 12 stages of burnout and things like that but really we're looking at what are the changes you can make within the organisation that you're working in. How can you improve the way you work with each other and how can we make this culture better? Because the cure for burnout is not self-care. The cure for burnout is caring for each other. It's about having a more human workplace culture. That ultimately is what will shift the dial. How are you making sure that
0: you are maintaining your own mental health and when you're independent,
1: making sure that you're not back on that path that brought you here in the first place? The thing with burnout is it's a little bit like a virus and it kind of resides in you. So if you're quite prone to burnout and there are people who are within certain categories, women, introverts, for example, perfectionists, overachievers, it will always be a part of you. Like it's always kind of brewing. So the key thing for me is really about ensuring that I keep those boundaries And that I um, make time to love myself, that I have to value me more than anything else. But I'm also very clear with my boundaries with my clients. So, you know, I have my days that I work. I don't work on weekends. I get lots of requests to come to events and do things. I just say no, (laughs) because I know that it's more important for me to be with my family And to remember that lesson I learned when I was on my deathbed, that actually love is everything. And I do love my work and I love helping people, but I love my family more. And I'm a mum, I have a young daughter, you know, she's five years old and I want to be with her and I want to be with my husband and I want to see my parents and I want to be there. I want to be part of the events and and the moments, which I never was beforehand because I was always working. For me, it's about definitely loving myself and valuing myself in the day so that I don't spend all day glued to my computer but it's also making sure that when I shut down the laptop it's shut down <laughs> and that's it it's time for me and my family that kind of I hate work-life balance as a term but actually having separation between the two is, is everything for me and making sure that I don't lose sight of those things because they are the most important things and I know that but it can be very easy to get carried away with the validation of like, oh, another client, or I just got booked for this talk, or I'm going to put this on LinkedIn. You know, how many likes have I got? And like, And really, none of those things matter. They're inconsequential in the end. It's constant reminders to myself that like, hang on, are we going back into, you know, old Sharon? So it's like a continual adjustment. I'm watching myself. <laughs> Uh, very very much um and I guess after a while you just know your own signs and I know mine so having gone through that
0: chrysalis moment and as you say you know you don't want to be glued to computers you don't want to constantly be doing
1: that work 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 thing what else makes Sharon Sharon this is something I think people won't necessarily know about me so well this is something people will know about me is that I'm very very disciplined particularly around things like food and exercise when I was working in the corporate world people would often laugh about the fact that on my desk I would have like different containers of like different snacks and most people would just make their way through all those containers and like not give it a second thought but I would never do that I would be very measured one cracker one bit of fruit or you know and it was very 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 particular like that uh, and that's partly because of what I went through, but I really like look after my 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 health. But there's one thing that I have no discipline around at all. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know this, but I'm obsessed by eating crisps, <laughs> just crisps. <laughs> like I'm one of those people that like you go to a party and there's a bowl of crisps. I'll eat them. I'll be eating the crisps. I love them.
0: But wait, you say you haven't got the discipline, which is fair enough. It, may, you know, it doesn't even sound like it's a guilty
1: pleasure. It's just a pleasure. I actually quite like the basic ones, which are quite frankly full of a lot of salt, but I don't think are very good for you. But I like the old school ones that I ate probably as a child. So I'll eat Monster Munch, no problem. I'll take them from my daughter. Like I'll be like, no, you don't like that flavour. <laughs> I'll have that. <laughs> yeah, just like really salted, from cocktail, Bacon crisps, they're not healthy, but I love them. But there is one crisp I won't eat, and that is cheese and onion. <gasps> no, I cannot eat cheese and onion. It's completely unacceptable to me. <laughs> I literally I live off of cheese and onion crisps. <laughs> <laughs> I am lactose intolerant, so that might be part of it, but I, I just don't like the taste. So
0: when you do go overseas or you go to other places, for example, are you a crisp officiando then and just sort of testing out the new crisps to see, you know, could you be a crisp... Ambassador, is that something that you would yeah. factor in beyond like the burnout staff, beyond the consultancy,
1: would you take on a crisp role? Definitely. I take crisp with me. <laughs> a lot of my suitcase will be filled with my favourite flavour crisps. I'm not even gonna pretend. They're in my suitcase. And I'm not gonna share them.
0: They're for me. It's the crisps. And have you ever had your suitcase opened where they've been
1: like, Why have you got a whole suitcase full of crisps? But <laughs> Definitely. I've been asked that question many a time. Many a time. And I've explained that I love crisps and that I have a lot of allergies. And so I'm very particular about what I eat. They're not impressed by my explanation, but they've I've never had a problem with the crisps. They've never they've never confiscated them.
0: It sounds so wonderful to have those little things. Like, is there anything else that's quite small but joyful that you just love to embrace
1: (laughs) i think what happened with time because the discipline and uh, is really control so i want to control things right because when you fear especially for someone with ptsd i fear unknowns so control for me is key i need to control things and and the discipline is a is linked to that because it's a form of controlling what i put into my body at a time you know given that i've gone through something where i so much was happening to my body and it was out of my control so the ability to be able to let go and to accept and to find the joy again to admit that these are things that i like and it's not about being perfect sharon who's very regulated about what she eats and does the right thing That actually, I will slob around and I will eat loads of crisps in front of the TV. And I won't even pretend. For me, it's it's a weird, uh, not that crisps are particularly good for anyone, but that is a form of self-love for me because it is a form of acceptance of the imperfections and enjoying things and being like, it's okay. I don't have to always do the right thing. And I think that has come with time. I read a really, really good book. michael a singer called the surrender experiment which he talks about letting go and accepting the will of the universe that actually things will unfold and the less you try to fight it and the more you accept it the happier your life will be and for someone who's previously been a control freak that was like an enormous revelation for me i was like what i was like so i just let things go and let it happen and I remember reading this on holiday when I was in Spain with my husband and my daughter. And I said to my husband, I was like, I'm just going like, to let go. I'm just going to like say yes to things. And he went, what, like everything in the bedroom? I was like, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what I was thinking. I was thinking more like, I won't control the itinerary. So he was a little less excited by that point. But I have to say that was the best holiday we ever had because I let go. Uh, and so I think the crisps and the admitting of it and the embracing of it and the enjoying of it I think that is a part of that is the letting go that actually I'm like yeah I know I know like I'm meant to talk about like improving myself because I'm a coach and you know watching all these webinars and workshops and weekends but you know like, I don't want to do it <laughs> uh, I want to sit around with my daughter who by the way also loves crisps it's a shared joy for us both and we both love watching tv and I know really it's not good for either of us to watch a lot of tv I know this but I love it <laughs> I love tv shows and she loves tv shows and so like we enjoy these moments together That it brings us great joy that we both have our separate cribs because obviously we can't share. So we have like separate bags, so that's cool. But that we do those things together because they're what makes me happy and they make her happy as well. And, and I hope she's not ruined by watching too much TV. Anything else that you want people to think about? Well, actually, I love cooking Indian food. That's my thing. Actually, there's something people probably don't know unless they've worked with me a lot. I eat Indian food for lunch and for dinner. <laughs> like home-cooked indian food don't really eat anything else
0: <laughs> i guess the beauty of indian food is so wide it's there's such a breadth of dishes from uh the regions everywhere but is there anything particular that you're like as soon as you see that dish maybe it's got crisps in it maybe it's like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's like Cheta, which is a kenyan dish that you're like that's it that's my that's my thing i love kheer rice pudding I love it so much I can't I yeah. would never give that up but is there anything that you really love cooking and really enjoy
1: eating? well I'm North Indian so it's Punjabi food so if I think about what I really love eating it probably be my mum's chicken curry which I've also learned to cook actually all the food that is cooked in my family is it, my grandmother's recipes she was a phenomenal cook I guess we're all continuing her legacy by continuing to cook those meals. The
0: wonderful Sharon Anaja of Humanity Works Consultancy. Do
1: you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would
0: love to hear from you and maybe we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? It can be found via www.dritishar.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. If you like the podcast, do share, rate and review. It's an independent podcast and if you find it helpful, then let people know. Thank you to Reen Shah for the music.